It is good to be together today. Thank you for uh, coming back and being the church here in this place. Or if you're joining us online today, uh, you matter every bit as much to us. And we're thrilled to be uh, seeking God together today. If you are a newcomer in the life of this community, you may not know that we have been studying over these past several weeks um, what is known as the Book of Kings in the Old Testament. And uh, when we think about Old Testament stories, you know, there's a tendency to sort of think of it as a, you know, oh, but that happened way back in ancient history. I'm not sure that's too relevant for today. But if those of us who have been along for the ride so far have realized, oh my gosh, this is incredibly relevant stuff for our time. And I hope that will be your experience today, whether you've been along for the ride or whether you're just joining us for the first time, that you'll find there's just so much practical wisdom in God's word for us. So let me just quickly catch us up on the past episodes of the story, if I can. Uh, we have been following the, the tale of, of a power couple by the name of Ahab and Jezebel. And this is a pair of people. Uh, Jezebel is a, a woman from Phoenicia, from a town called Sidon, up north of Israel. She's from a very different religious tradition than the Jewish king Ahab. And the two of them get married. And the result of that particular union takes the nation of Israel on a journey further and further away from the God that had been their founder, that had been their blesser, that was the center of their, of their religious community and public community's life. Uh, now, Ahab and Jezebel are inviting the uh, Israelites to worship other gods. Uh, gods by the name of Baal and, uh, and Asherah amongst them. And what's significant about the worship of these other gods is that these other religious or spiritual traditions, uh, rather than lead people towards a greater sense of, of health and wholeness and holiness and community concern, these other gods actually fragment Israel and, and fragment individual lives. Uh, some of the, the worship traditions of Baal and Asherah involved child sacrifice and ritualized sex and, um, and a sort of a reverence for power and celebrity, which I guess it might just be relevant for today uh, in terms of some of the themes that we also struggle with. And um, so God has now sent a, a prophet, a, a, a truth teller on his behalf to try and wake Ahab and Jezebel up and to get them to use their power differently. And, and he's trying to get their attention. And, and this prophet, Elijah by name, um, speaks in very forceful ways. And he tells the, the, the power couple, the royal couple, that God is going to send a huge drought on the land. And that, that his intention in sending the drought is to really um, awaken people to their need to turn back to him who is actually the giver of, of all graces, even simple things like dew and, and rain. So it's a terrible time, frankly, in Israel. It's a tumultuous time in Israel. Um, it's a time, I guess, a little like what we are going through here in the world today when, when we see so many things kind of going wrong and we're, and we're doing this gut check and wondering, gosh, how does this get repaired? Uh, what the heck has gone wrong? Uh, so the sin of Ahab and Jezebel has brought drought, and drought has brought famine, and famine has brought illness and death. 
And as uh, Tara Beth Leach shared with us so beautifully last week, um, that, that death and that illness and those struggles are hitting the life of ordinary people, like this widow of Zarephath that we looked at last week and her son. Uh, her plan A, as Tara Beth described, has been totally disrupted. Uh, and this is a story that many, many people in Israel are living at this uh, moment in time. And I think there's a really powerful lesson in this, a, a takeaway worth thinking about uh, in this part of the book of Kings. When sin and selfishness infect a powerful person's life, the damage flows downhill. Now, it's, it's, it's a problem when, when sin and selfishness affect anybody's life, right? It, it makes us less than the people we could be for others. But when it happens to somebody who's actually got a lot of influence, a lot of power and authority, it is a serious problem. And it begins to affect, because it flows downhill from there, affects innocent people and ordinary and vulnerable people. Just think of the damage now being done in Ukraine, in Russia, by, by one man who has tremendous power, but whose heart is turned in the wrong direction. Just think of that. Think of, the, of what happens to kids in the home where, where mom or dad is, is an addict or an alcoholic. Just think of the, of the unbelievable cascading effects of that. Think of the damage done by a bad boss or tragically in our day by messed up pastors. Um, powerful people have a, an ability, if their heart isn't right, to mess things up for lots of people. So the, the big idea here is if you're in a position of leadership any place, you know, you're the head of, you know, you're, you're leading a home, you're leading a business, you're, you're supervising people in a, in a workplace, you're, you're a, a teacher in a school, you're, you're in any position of power and authority, guard your heart carefully. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. What's going on in your heart, the way you're oriented in life, the way you're handling situation and resources is going to cascade down to all kinds of other people. And it's immensely important that you're thinking about how the condition of your own heart is. Um, for example, I would say, if you're a leader, make sure you're studying the leadership style of Jesus and emulating that. You're going to be given all kinds of other idols, alternate ways of thinking and moving around the subject of leadership. Study Jesus. I think we can safely argue he, he, he has had the longest lasting leadership influence in history on planet Earth. Right? Would we agree with that? Is, I think it's a historical fact. So study the leadership style of Jesus and make that your model. Make sure you're in a small group where you have given permission to the other people the group might be your family, it might be a group of relatives, it might be a group of friends, it might be a church small group. You've given permission to those people to tell you the truth. Where they see you slipping uh, in terms of the way you're living your life or influencing others, it's okay for them to say, hey, sister, brother, wait, you know, think about this. This is what we're noticing. Um, get help if you're in trouble. Get help if you're in trouble. I made a phone call this morning to a friend of mine who's in a position of leadership, and the answering machine message on the cell phone said, I'm gone for two weeks and can't be reached. I'm on personal leave. I won't be getting mail. I won't be answering texts, which tells me what? He's in trouble. Two, he's gone for help. 
Uh, pray for that friend. <laughs> Get help if you're in trouble, uh, especially if you're a leader, because it's the wellspring of your life that's going to cascade down into other people's lives. Uh, which is why I think the Apostle Paul urges us, pray for kings. Pray for all those in high positions, he says, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives so that what flows from them will actually be good for all of us. So 1 Kings chapter 18 continues the story like this. It says, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. The first job of leaders, by the way, is to listen for the word of the Lord. You know, that's the first thing we have. Somebody came to me after the first service and said, boy, I was really convicted by the message. And I said, yeah, he had to convict me first. So if this made you squirm a little bit, just think how I was squirming as God was saying this to me. Um, so the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and convicts him, and then the word says to him, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. I'm going to send rain on the The drought's going to stop. Now, I love this verse because it tells us something really important about the heart of God here, uh, the ultimate wellspring of life, the heart of God. God's given Ahab and Jezebel three years now to sort themselves out. He's been unbelievably patient. And, and you might think that after three years, what he's going to now do is like really fully smite the land. But actually his message is, I'm going to send rain again. I'm going to send the blessing of rain again. Uh, there's no evidence in the storyline that Je Ahab and Jezebel have improved their behavior. Uh, but God sends his prophet Elijah anyway to say to them, I'm ending the drought. I will send rain on the land again. I will send rain on the land again. Now, in couples therapy, we would call this a repair attempt. A repair attempt. Uh, so imagine you're sort of in a coupled relationship. It might be a marriage. It might be a dating relationship. It might be a best friend. It might be a, a work colleague relationship. And there's been a terrible fight. And, and bad things, mean things, harsh, almost unforgettable things have been said, and it's gone back and forth, and like all communication and sense of connection is, is gone. It's broken down. You're, in, you're, just, you're at different ends of, of space. Um, you're, just, you're still turning on what happened and how right you were and how wrong that person was and how hurtful that was. And, you know, it's just, I know this has not ever happened to any of you, but remember, God's word is for your neighbors. It's for the person sitting next to you. So in the middle of this mess, just suppose one of you decides to do something servant-hearted towards the other. You bring them a cup of coffee in the morning. Or you, you touch the shoulder as you're going by in the kitchen or the hallway. Or you, or you say a kind word, hey, I noticed this that you did and I just, I really appreciated it. That's called a repair attempt. That's, that's a repair attempt. Because even though it's emotionally costly to do that kind of thing, when you're, when you're in a fight, when you're at a distance with each other, um, it can also change the chemistry. If you extend an olive branch, if you give grace, even though the person, the person may not deserve this kind of kind, you still do it anyway. And, and, and it can lead that other person to sort of take a tiny step back in your direction too. 
And gradually over time, if both uh, couple, people in the couple make these little attempts and these little responses to the attempt, it can bring you back together again. Top therapists say that the willingness to attempt repair and receive a repair attempt is the number one predictor of whether there's hope for the relationship. Think about that. Reaching out with and recognizing and receiving grace is the key to hope in life. I, I get choked up when I think about uh, how God models this all through the Bible. Go to the first story of the Bible. Uh, Adam and Eve have messed up royally. Uh, they have done, they had everything and they wanted more. And they, they, they ran against the one thing God said don't do. And, and they're now heading out of Eden as sort of a consequence of what's happened. They're walking out of the Garden of Eden, kind of sulking their way out, uh, heads down. And what does God do? He clothes them. They're naked and ashamed. And God says, take the clothes with you. Here's some clothes for you. It's a repair attempt. So many times through the course of the history of Israel, you see the bad acting by the children of Israel. You know, they're in the wilderness. They're worshiping golden calves. They're grumbling and complaining. You know, 10 minutes ago, they were saying, get us out of Egypt. Now they're saying, take us back to Egypt. You know, this is miserable out here. And we see God giving them manna, feeding them with quail, just continuing to reach out with his grace towards them. All through the later history of Israel, when, when Israel's wandering away, God sends prophets. His prophets are his, part of his repair attempt, his effort to try and establish the connection again with his people. He does this again and again. And in the New Testament, we start to see an even larger meaning for this stuff. You know, you remember the story of the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus' most famous story? And how, how the, the younger brother who's been such a rebel and has so offended his father's heart and taken half the family money and gone off and squandered it all, he comes back over the hill again one day, back towards the family farm. And his father, you know, seeing him out there has got probably, based on past performance, almost no reason to think that kid isn't just coming back to get more cash. You know, he's just coming back for more based on what he's already done. And yet the father goes running out to greet him, Jesus says, and throws his arms around him and holds a big party for him. And the older brother in the story, the same story, the older brother in the story is just so steaming mad that this younger, no good, lazy son of a gun has gotten all this kind of grace. He storms outside the house and is just simmering with rage that he who was such a good kid wasn't getting the credit that he deserved. Even though he had had it all, he had, had all the blessings of the father's home. What does the father do? He goes out to him and says, come on in. Come on inside. It's a repair attempt. This is the heart of God. He always wants to close the breach and, and this is why I say reaching out with grace and recognizing and, and receiving grace is the key. It's the absolute key to hope in life because 
the biggest problems of our life are because of these, these divisions, these breaks we have with each other, with whole sectors of our society, with other, with other nations. It's everything that goes wrong. It's a relational problem. It's a relational problem. And, and, and until we have sort of experienced the ultimate reconciling power and heart of God, it's hard for us to really be agents of that kind of reconciling relationship care in the way the world needs given the conditions today. So the first thing we need to do is to be reconciled with God himself, to connect with the Father at the deepest possible level ourselves. And then we will begin to develop a heart like his towards other people. It's the hope of the world. So just landing this for a minute, just on a practical level, personally, who in your life right now might you make a repair attempt with? Who might you extend the grace that they don't necessarily deserve in order to try and close the gap between you? Who might you do that for simply because God's like that? Because he's graced you? Because you want a heart like his? The Bible goes on to say, so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And of course, when... um, Ahab saw Elijah, he says, oh, I've been feeling so badly about all the things I'm doing, I've decided to change. No, that's not what the story says. It's not at all what's happening here. This is what it actually says. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, the word troubler there in the Hebrew it refers to somebody who is a destructive person, somebody whose actions or behavior is, is destructive of other people. And this is really ironic because Ahab is basically seeing Elijah as a destroyer, as a destructive person, uh, when it is actually the king himself who is destroying the land and the spirituality of his people. For three years now, the land of Israel has been undergoing this incredible drought, which was a judgment Uh, that came on Ahab and Jezebel, designed to turn them back towards God. But have Ahab and Jezebel taken the hint? Have they examined their hearts? Have they changed anything? Have they detached themselves from the idolatries that they were running after? Have they done any of that? No, they've not. They've not done that. In fact, they're deeper into this stuff than they've ever been. They're paying lip service every now and then to, you know, worshiping uh, Yahweh, the Lord, but they're really totally all in, in bed with these other kinds of, of allegiances in their life. So in the midst of the massive drought and famine, are these, is the royal couple at least you know, concerned about the people in the land who are, gonna, who are feeling the consequences of what they've done? Is that their worry? Nope. We go back earlier in 1 Kings 18, we discover that Ahab's big concern is, will there be enough food and water for my mules and my horses? Wow. Wow. So here's another great lesson from the book of Kings. When you're spiritually lost, when, you, when sin or selfishness has taken over your heart, when you've gotten your moral bearings distorted, when your priorities have gotten out of line or whack, 
The people God sends you to set you right will often look like enemies. They'll look like enemies. Um, Elijah comes to actually offer grace to Ahab in the form of rain, but Ahab responds to Elijah the way the powerful Pharisees in the New Testament and Caiaphas the high priest and, and uh, Herod the king of the Jews responded to Jesus. Which is to say, their help and their hope was standing right in front of them. Hands open, reaching out. And they thought he was an enemy. Wow. That's how stubborn sin can be. We just get locked in to, to a, a, a perspective so curved in on ourselves, we don't even see reality the same way anymore. Um, so my question is, who is the Elijah God might be trying to send to us? Or to you, or to me? Who's the Elijah in our life? Who might God have sent to disturb us in the way we need disturbing and disrupting? Uh, I, I've been disturbed over the years by, by, by a lot of things that certain people in my family or certain people in the church have said to me that just made me really uncomfortable and only over time come to realize it was the truth that would set me free if I took it. It would be the thing that would help me become a better person if I listened to it. It's a very unfashionable idea, what I'm about to say is, but God is so much less interested in yours and my comfort than he is in our character. In fact, he will wreck our comfort if that's what it, it takes to, to shape our character. Especially if we have power and influence and privilege and authority. He's got to get to our character because what we do or don't do impacts people that he loves. So who might be the Elijah coming to you, trying to shake you up in some way? That person that's criticizing you, that's challenging you, that person of a different race or a different political party or a different social segment. Could that person actually be bringing the voice of God, trying to set something right. And conversely, to whom might God be calling you to be an Elijah? To say the hard thing. Uh, who, who, who would that be? Or do you think that maybe God just is done with prophets? Because things are going so well. <laughs> do you think so? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied to Ahab, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands. You've followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, most of, now this may surprise Mount Carmel um, was not originally a great Catholic school with terrific sports. <laughs> it was an actual place. It's in the northwest corner of, of, of Israel. 
uh, it, it, it commands an incredible view uh, down to the, to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea through the modern city of Haifa and on the eastern slopes. It, it it's a view, has a view out over the, the plain of Jezreel, which incidentally is a place that the book of Revelation suggests the final battle of history may be fought. I've been there. It's an amazing, you know, it's a dramatic place. So what we hear about next is, is this extraordinary encounter between the real God and the false gods. In fact, maybe the greatest historical encounter between a God and God's uh, substitutes ever recorded, save for what happened on another mountain that I'll mention at the end today. We witness here this contest between Elijah, who thinks of himself now as the one prophet of God left, and 850 of the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Uh, it is a David and Goliath contest just like scaled up in a big time. Only it really isn't a fight between two people or two groups of people. It's a fight or a struggle or a contest between two hopes, two, two of the gods or forms of religion and hope that, that people have put their confidence in. Uh, and so Elijah uh, goes on to, to basically say, we just need to do a simple test here as to who really has the power, who's really God. And so he says, let's just have each, uh, I'll sacrifice a bull, you sacrifice a bull, and um, we just won't light the fire to burn the sacrifice. We'll let our gods do that. That's what we should do. And each of us will call upon our divine power to light the wood in our respective altars. And it's, by the way, from this narrative that we get our statement, trial by fire. It's this story that, that gave us that little, that little phrase. Elijah goes on to say, you call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. Then all the people said, sounds good. Let's do it. Let's have the contest. So Elijah lets the prophets of Baal and Asherah go first in the contest. And they start praying. And they're praying and they're praying very seriously. And then they start dancing around. And they're, they're, they're doing everything they can to show how serious they, they're praising their God. They're dancing and praying. But like this goes on for a couple of hours and there's silence from heaven. No action from heaven. Clear skies. It, there's, there's no change. And and. Elijah began to taunt them, the Bible says. Elijah began to taunt them. Turn up the volume, he says, guys. I mean, pump up the DBs. I, I, think, maybe, I think maybe your God is napping. I think maybe, I think maybe your gods are, are answering their email. They, I think they're posting on social media. I think your gods maybe went on a vacation. So amp it up. Now, of course, he doesn't say literally that, but go back and read 1 Kings 18. He says some pretty funny things as he's sort of just mocking in a, in a I guess in a spiritual way, these people. Uh, I don't know. He's kinda, he kind of lets loose on them. Um, so the prophets now are, are being humiliated and, and they, now they start cutting themselves. 
they start slicing their bodies and bleeding because they think they're, that gods want blood from them in order to, uh, to be happy. It will show that, 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 they're, that they're serious about this thing. And it goes on like this for more hours till the time of the evening sacrifice and there's nothing. The Bible says literally, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Zilch. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. Who else would one day say, come unto me? Come unto me. Yeah, Jesus would say that. And they came to him. And then pay attention to what he says, what happens here. And he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. You will be mine. You will put me first, and I will bless you. He repairs the altar where that had once happened, and it had been torn down by the Baal worshipers and the Asherah people, Ahab and Jezebel, had, had dismantled that and replaced it with other kinds of altars. I love this part of the story because it's an incredibly practical lesson for all of us. If you have a relationship in your life, whether it's with God or with somebody else, and it has broken down and it's not working anymore, repair an altar. Repair an altar. Find some place or some um, rhythm or discipline or pattern of life that used to be the way that you said to the other person, you're first in my life. You matter to me. I, I, will go to, I will go to the wall for you and repair it. Repair it. Start using your time or your resources or your words in the way you once originally did during that time when they got that you felt that way about them and see what happens. So then Elijah had people pour water on the wood on his altar so that it would be almost impossible to light except for an unimaginable kind of heat. And then he said, do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And I've been on a more than a few scouting campouts, and I'm going to tell you, that baby's not lighting. That fire's not lighting. No barbecue tonight. Ain't happening by any human means. Then the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Do this amazing thing, God. Not to crush the ordinary people of the land, but to turn their hearts back to you, the giver of grace. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the wood, it burned up the stones, it burned up the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. Mic drop. <laughs> Mic drop on Mount Carmel. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, face down on the ground, and they cried, the Lord, he is God. 
yeah, yeah, he is. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, all the people now we're talking about, not the prophets, the people watching. He commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Hard stuff. I'll say something about that in a moment. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. The grace is coming back. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees in humility. I want to confess that I have left out of the narrative so far the most famous verse. At one point in the story, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you be trying to have it both ways? You know, how long will that go on? If the Lord is God, follow him. I mean, really, do it. Don't pay lip service to it. Follow him. But if Baal is God, okay. Just go all in. Follow him. Peter Marshall, the great chaplain of the United States Senate, once finished a really famous sermon on this text by saying, if God be God, I wish he could say it in the Scottish accent, he has, if God be God, then follow him, but if Baal be God, then follow him and go to hell, said Marshall. This was like in 1946. This is a day when to say the H word in church, it would make dentures drop, right? But there in the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., at the heart of this nation, Marshall felt like he had to grab the country and its leadership by the lapels and shake them up to make their teeth rattle. Because America and, and, and here at the heart of the nation, they were just losing our way. We were serving, he felt, so many idols. We were chasing after power and sex and, and, and material things, and we just were so obsessed with all of these things. We had lost our first love. We would lost our, our understanding of the God who had made us and blessed us. And so he came like a prophet and said these very harsh things. You can't put God and Bail first. You just can't do it. And God won't brook it. God will not stand for it. And, and we must wake up. Over the years, I've asked myself, what brings revival? What makes people put God truly first? Stop chasing after the, the idols, the bales and the asherahs. What is it that changes people's heart? What makes them start, actually, to, to not only turn back to this God, but then to start to view every other area of their life as an altar for honoring him? What makes them suddenly start saying, oh, the way I handle conflict with my enemies, that's an altar. The way I handle my material resources, that's an altar. The way I handle co uh, conflict with my friends, that's an altar. The way I do my marriage, oh, that's an altar for honoring God, showing a heart like him. What does that? What does that? Well, Old Testament texts like this one in 1 Kings would suggest that one reason would be out of healthy fear. 
that if we do not honor God, one day his patience might run out. And, and one day we're going to wind up like the prophets of Baal, cut down at, at some final judgment. It's not an altogether bad reason for, for considering our, our courses. You know, I stopped smoking because I thought, oh, you know, one day I'm going to actually have a heart attack that kills me. <laughs> right? It's not bad to have a healthy fear. But as I close today, I want to suggest to you another way home, an additional way home, a pathway which it occurs to me, this story about Mount Carmel might have been intended to prefigure, to foreshadow, so we would recognize it when it came. You see, friends, World Communion Sunday today is a day when people all over planet Earth come together at various altars to remember that once upon a time, on another mountaintop outside Jerusalem, there was a sacrifice made. There was an incredible sacrifice made. God himself submitted to a trial by fire. Jesus voluntarily laid himself down on what? On wood. On wood. He was drenched in the Holy Spirit, the living water of God's Holy Spirit. And he lay on that wood. And the full fiery judgment uh, of, against sin and idolatry which had enwrapped the world fell upon Jesus. The fire fell on Jesus. He was the one who suffered the penalty. But Christ's death on that mountaintop wasn't a, a vain thing. It was God's ultimate repair attempt. It was his ultimate way of saying, this is my heart for you. This is how much you matter to me. It was his attempt to bring us as a world back home to him. It unleashed a rain, a, a rain in both spellings of that word, of incredible grace that continues to wash everybody that wants to be bathed in it. Do you want to be bathed in it? Do you know that today can be the start of that? That this, that this communion he's offering you can be the start of a whole new relationship with him that alters all your other good relationships and your bad ones for the better. Do you want it? In a world blazing with idols and altars of many kinds, who is your God? Who is going to be the one you put in ultimate charge. Who sits, who will sit on the throne of your life? Who will you choose to follow from here as your source of significance and identity and hope? If Baal is God, okay, follow him. And reap the consequences of that. But if Jesus is God, follow him for life. Answer that question for yourself.